thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Victoria Gill. Hi, Vic. Hello. Dave Ansell. Hi, Chris. And with me, Chris Smith. Now, this week, scientists have solved the sticky topic of how ivy attaches itself so powerfully as it does to walls and other plants and trees. And now it's obviously a 21st century plant because it does it using nanoparticles and we'll find out why. Also, how French researchers have produced a road surface that can change colour to warn you when it's icy. And also, it's true that you should feed a cold, but should you also starve a feature, uh, a fever? Well, possibly. We'll be finding out why shortly. Vic. Thanks, Chris. And this week it's also our science question and answer show, so we'll be tackling your science questions. Plus, we're thirsty for the answer to this week's question of the week. If I'm walking through the desert and I come across a case of wine and I start drinking it, will it accelerate my dehydration or will it enable me to survive? So, will an alcoholic drink hasten your demise or will it help you to survive if you have no water out in the desert? Diana will be here with the answer later in the programme. Dave. Thanks, Vic. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be showing you the true power of air pressure, and you may even get to pulverise an egg in the process. So if you want to have a go, all you'll need is a hard-boiled egg, a glass jar with a neck slightly smaller than the egg, and some hot water. I'll show you how shortly. Thank you very much, Dave. Sounds exciting. So if you've got a question for us, and the wackier they are, the better, then get in touch. On the way, we're going to be answering Beth's question, which is about why snakes don't poison themselves. Email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at what's hot in the world of science this week. Vic, what have you been finding out? Well, despite the inclement weather, I've got some sort of spring garden-themed news stories this week. Um, apparently, ivy makes its own nanoparticles, and they've revealed the secret to why it's uh, it's such a pest and can't be pulled off walls and off the trees and stuff it climbs up. So um, how does this work, then? Well, you know the, the little tiny rootlets that shoot out from the ivy roots when it's climbing? Um, these produce a, a substance that actually Charles Darwin himself had a look at um, and he described it as a, a sort of yellowy substance, a kind of goo. Um, but <laughs> it doesn't sound very much like Darwin, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't think he actually used that word, but it was a yellowish substance anyway, but we've not got much further than that. Um, but now scientists are a bit more interested in how plants are actually um, making things using biochemical processes. And so... Scientists at the University of Tennessee have looked at ivy and it turns out that this yellow substance contains nanoparticles that are formulated by the ivy. Now, um, what they did was they took a sample of this stuff and um, they used atomic force microscopy, which is just a very sensitive microscopic technique that can look at things at the atomic scale. And they found these tiny little nanoparticles that are made of hydrocarbon tails and then polar, so charged heads of either sulfur or oxygen. They're, they're not still not quite sure and they're looking further at them. But the trick seems 
seems to be that these little nanoparticles are using hydrogen bonding to grab onto whatever surface the ivy is growing on. So they're making a sort of electrical attraction between the yeah. ivy rootlet and the wall they want to cling onto, and so they're, they're sticking on electrically. Yes, so that seems to be the, the trick to why ivy is, uh, is clinging so toughly to these surfaces using hydrogen bonding. How do they do it, and are they the only plants that do that? Um, it's the first plant that has ever been shown to, to produce its own nanoparticles. In actual fact, um, other plants such as alfalfa have already been harnessed to make nanoparticles out of solutions by absorbing, say, gold and silver and turning that into nanoparticles. But this is a, a process whereby it makes its very own nanoparticles from scratch. Are the nanoparticles then attached to the plant in another way or are they hydrogen bonding to the plant and to the wall? Uh, they're hydrogen bonding to the plant and to the wall. So it seems to be these tails and, and, these, and heads that seem to stick the two together. And do scientists think that you could use this to, to make other things that might be useful for us? And if so, exactly how? That's the next step. They want to find out exactly how ivy is doing this so that possibly they'd be able to harness it and get ivy to work for them to produce other nanoparticles that they might be able to design. Now, on the subject of colour, because uh, that was a strange yellow cunk, uh, many, death, <laughs> many deaths each year are caused by cars slipping on ice. A lot of the problem is that it's hard to know whether there's ice on the road. So you're driving along, you think the road's absolutely fine, then suddenly you hit a big sheet of black ice because you dip, go into a dip and it's a bit colder, it's, so everything's icing up there, you slide, you crash, you die, which is generally bad. Now, engineers at a company called uh, Eurovia in France have come up with something which might help. It's called temperature-sensitive varnish. The idea is you paint the white um, lines on the road with a clear varnish, which is normally completely clear, so it doesn't affect anything at all. But if the temperature drops below about 1 degree centigrade, then the varnish goes bright pink. So if you're driving along and you suddenly see the dotted lines in the middle of the road have gone pink, you know that it's cold. So Can you, you see that down. at night, Dave? Because obviously most of this time it's going to be when it's dark and night time. And will you be able to pick this up enough in car headlights, do you think? That is actually the one, that, one of the things that they're a bit worried about. They haven't quite got there yet. They've, um, also, sorry to, to, to add to your woes, a list of woes, but aren't headlights in France yellow? And will the pink show through that? Um, I'm not sure whether the, yeah, I mean, I guess you, you'll see it, you'll definitely see a darker area in the middle of the, um, in the middle of the white line, um, because it will be less bright because it's a color rather than white. Um, but they are working on getting it really visible at night. Um, so there's a bit more work to do. Has it worked? Um, basically they've got this, I think they've got something called a Luco dye in there. Um, it's using all sorts of things like those t-shirts, which are very popular a few years ago, which changed color when you put your hands on them, um, and under your armpit. Um, which is basically a pH... You could have a naked scientist, one of those, wouldn't it? <laughs> indeed, indeed, but we'll work on that later. Uh, pH-sensitive dye and a salt, which um, changes the pH when it melts. And so this melts at about 1 degree centigrade, and it freezes, so as it cools down below 1 degree centigrade, it freezes, changes the pH, so it changes the colour of the dye, so the varnish changes colour. Will it survive the summer sun? Because that's that, the other problem with these dyes, isn't it? They, they get broken down by sunlight. Yeah, most dyes. That's one of the other things they're working on. I guess they could put some kind of sunscreen in, in it, but they're, they're still working on these things. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be like a job. total body makeover for the road, isn't it? I suppose you could just paint it in black spots and just re re reapply it on a yearly basis where, where the accidents are worse, uh, if, it, if it does help drivers. If it helps enough, although obviously it'd be better if it would last longer because it saves money that way. We're talking of the cold. What about colds that afflict us humans? Because there's this old saying, your grandmother probably told you, feed a cold and starve a fever. Well, is that true? Well, a group of researchers at, at the University of South Florida, led by Lynn Martin, decided to put this to the test. And rather than get humans to do it, they asked some simple little rodents, deer mice, to do this for them. What they did was to 
take caged deer mice and they watched how much the animals ate in the average week. So they knew what the average deer mouse consumed and then they knocked 30% off of that and gave them rationed food, 30% less than they normally needed and they watched what happened to their immune system because there's a big association that we've seen where people who don't look after themselves or they have chronic illnesses or they're malnourished or they have an eating disorder are much less likely to mount an effective immune response. In other words, they don't fight infection very well, they succumb to more infections and they remain infectious for longer and they wanted to get to the bottom of why that is and what they found with these mice was that the population of their B memory cells, these are a kind of white blood cell which when your immune system fights off an infection, you make these B cells and they store a memory of how to fight off the infection you've just seen so that when it comes up again you just make lots of antibody from these B cells so that you can fight the infection much more swiftly the next time. And what was really interesting is in these mice that weren't eating enough, they were very, very reduced in the levels of these B memory cells. And so this probably explains why people who don't eat properly do end up not fighting infection as well and they're more likely to succumb to infections again in the future on a, on a subsequent occasion. So what they're saying is eat properly and this has big implications for vaccinating people, especially in countries where they may be malnourished at the same time. So does that um, eliminate the, the myth about starving a fever as well then? It certainly does because if you're going to feed a cold you should also feed a fever because whenever you have a high metabolic rate because your body is fighting an infection, because fighting infection takes a lot of energy, you need to put that energy back in to make sure your body has got enough resources available to make the full immune system work. And the, the argument that Lynn Martin's making is that maintaining these memory B cells is very costly to the body in terms of energy so it dispenses with it because it thinks it doesn't need it but of course what it does do is it's robbing Peter to pay Paul you're going to get another infection later. Although it's not quite testing um, the saying completely because it's not they're, you're not they're not telling the saying doesn't tell you to starve before you get a cold or before you get a, before you get the <laughs> well food. they were actually a little bit cleverer than that because what they did was to challenge the mice with an injection of something that made them make antibodies and then they looked at how they responded to that again later down the track once they'd been starved for two weeks and so it, it did actually test that yeah okay. I'm still on a spring theme. Um, I'm hanging on to it despite the snow. Um, researchers in the US again um, at the Salk Institute um, of Biomedical Research um, have found out why plants um, and how they respond to shade by increasing their height. Um, you might be familiar with the shade res shade uh, response of plants when if they're in the shade of another plant, they'll grow very stalky and tall to try and reach up and so that they can get to the, the sunlight and, and photosynthesize. Um, now, it turns out that plants can actually differentiate between the shade from inanimate objects and competition from other plants because there's a relative increase in far red light which other plants are um, absorbing which other plants are reflecting I'm sorry and because they're absorbing red light because of the green canopy of these plants that are getting in, in their way. So if it's not a plant then it doesn't ex ex sort of reflect this extra red light so yeah, the plant so can tell the difference between whether it's a plant it's competing with or a wall. Yeah so it's a relative increase in, in a certain type of a certain wavelength of light on the spectrum that, that plants other plants are going to reflect um, and what they do to combat this is they produce a hormone called oxygen and this hormone causes them to to grow but it's it's problematic because it produce it puts all of the plants energy into producing a um, a long stalk that makes them very tall but doesn't 
put all that much energy into producing seeds and fruit and the things that if you're a commercial grower you would want. Um, now what these researchers have found, they've made genetic mutants of some of, um, using these plants, um, of some of the genes that uh, they know are involved in this process and um, they've isolated it down to one gene and they've identified the enzyme called um, tryptophan aminotransferase that's involved in this biochemical process. And the important thing about that is that it's very easy to interfere with how enzymes work. You can, you can block them. So by blocking this particular enzyme, you could block this shade response in plants and get them to produce more berries and fruit and seeds. Sounds very useful. And, and talking about blocking things, Dave, blocking electrical flow through materials. Yes, you may have heard of superconductors. Um, they've been around for 100 years. They're materials which, if you cool them down far enough, the electrons sort of join up and form quantum objects or Cooper pairs. Something suddenly loses all of its electrical resistance and they can carry large currents with no energy losses. So they, how brain scanners work to a certain extent. Yeah, MRI you make, scanners. You can make very large electromagnets with them. <clears throat> Because if an electric current flows around them, it'll keep flowing forever, and you produce a huge electric magnet which doesn't need any power at all. So they're in MRI scanners, and the LHC in CERN is using big ones. Um, now, Christoph Strunk in Regensburg University in Germany and Associates have found a theoretically very similar state of matter called a superinsulator. Now, normal insulators are good at stopping current, but you'll always get a little current flowing through them. You can never absolutely stop it. It'll be minute, but there'll always be some there. But a superconductor will actually completely stop all current flowing through them. Um, it, uh, the, they, made, they made their superinsulator by cooling a very thin film of titanium nitride down to below 70 thousandths of a degree above absolute zero. So, so it's not very workable for your average kind of iPod then? So not, not going to be a major, not, not going to be in general use yet. Um, but they are, they've, worked, they've made it by producing lots of little puddles of superconductors. They kind of interacted in such a way as they completely stopped any current flowing in the same So this is the perfect insulator? So it's a perfect insulator. In theory, you could make a battery by just putting a layer of this insulator, putting a little charge on one side, positive charge on one side, negative charge on the other, and it would never flow through. And so your battery, if you didn't take the charge out, it would stay charged for hundreds of years. But it has to stay below 70 millikelvin, so 70 thousandth of a degree above absolute zero. But scientists are now looking at materials that can work with these special properties at higher and higher temperatures. So is the aim now to use what the kind of clues they've got from this but to work on newer materials that will work at a more practical temperatures i mean the superconductors now worked about minus 200 degrees centigrade which is really hot um so hopefully they could move it up and it also it may just be an interesting thing to look at you never know what might come out of it never know indeed thanks dave it is the naked scientists with chris dave and victoria in a second we're going to be tackling beth's question about why snakes can't poison themselves or each other to a certain extent if you've got a question for the naked scientists email us chris at the naked scientists.com laying the facts bare the naked scientists Beth, you're live on The Naked Scientist. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. What, what's, what's the nature of this question? Hi, yeah, um, after watching the uh, recent TV series, uh, Life in Cold Blood, I just wondered why um, venomous snakes didn't poison themselves when they ate their prey, because I know they're not immune to their poison because they don't use it on each other when they fight for territory battles, for example. Um, but because I know also, I say like animals and say us, for example, if we ate food which had been poisoned, it would have an adverse effect on us. But it doesn't seem so on snakes. I just wondered why that was really. Okay, the the reason is that the venom that snakes use is a protein. Okay. And proteins are molecules made of building blocks called amino acids. And they're the same stuff, effectively, as your Sunday roast, meat. <laughs> and that means that when you take them into your body, if you were to eat them, if, say, I ate a snake and I ate the poison sacs, 
if I just ate it and it went into my digestive system, the acid and the enzymes in my stomach would just be able to break down the protein so it would fall apart and it would be harmless. It's only actually toxic if it gets beyond the gut and gets into the circulation of the body. So that's why one snake could, for instance, eat another snake and it wouldn't be poisoned by it. And in the same way that a, a person who has diabetes and needs to inject the hormone insulin, insulin is a protein, and if you were to eat it by mouth, the digestive tract will break it down. That's why people have to inject insulin to make it work. So why don't snakes poison themselves, given that they already have the toxin in their bodies? Well, it's exactly the same reason as, for instance, your pancreas makes a deadly cocktail of digestive juices, which, if they got into your bloodstream, would kill you very rapidly. And people who get a condition called acute pancreatitis do have a very high mortality rate. It does kill people because they, they literally eat themselves from the inside out. The reason that they don't do that normally when you're healthy is because the enzymes are made in cells in an inactive state. They're exported from the cell into a duct, which is lined with specially protecting cells that stop it going back into the body's own tissues and doing damage. And the only place that it can go is down the duct and then out into the digestive tract. Now, if you put that into the context of the snake, it's got a, a gland which knows how to make the proteins in the venom they get exported into this duct, which is a special holding bay, protected from the venom. It can't go back the wrong way. And then when the snake bites you, there is tiny muscle cells around those ducts, and it squirts the venom down the fangs, because there's a duct in there, and, and into the holes that the teeth have made in you. So that's why the snake doesn't die from his own venom, because it keeps it in a specially adapted part of the body, so it can't get into circulation. And I did ask a, a snake venom researcher, and he said you, you can also find antibodies in snakes to their own venom to a certain extent so they kind of have their own anti-venom built in possibly because they have exposed themselves at low level i, I, I don't know if that's how, how actually protective that is but the, so there's two sort of mechanisms there why a snake wouldn't poison itself brilliant okay thanks very much thanks for joining us on the naked scientist beth thank you great to have your company thank you bye if you'd like to join us it's chris at the naked scientist.com now, one thing we do every single week is to do some exciting kitchen science, and if you want to do this week's one, it's fantastic because you get to pulverise an egg, Dave. Is that true? Well, if you could do it right, you might not pulverise an egg, but you never know your luck, really. Okay, so what do you need people to do? <laughs> okay, so what you want is a hard-boiled egg. The first thing you want to do with this hard-boiled egg is to um, peel it. So you want to peel the hard outside, a hard shell off the egg, so we'll start doing that. Um, what you'll also need is a jar which is slightly, which has got a neck which is slightly smaller than the egg, um, possibly some oil to lubricate things and something to make the jar hot. So what works really well is a couple of matches, but um, we can't do that in here because we might set off the fire alarm and that's generally considered unpopular with the BBC. <laughs> I think someone would kill you, actually. Okay, so you're peeling the egg. Yeah, then what do we do next? And then once we've peeled the egg, I'll use one which I made earlier over here. <laughs> once you've peeled the egg, what you do is you... So this is just a hard-boiled egg. You've stripped all the shell off. You're now taking the smaller jar with the neck slightly smaller than the egg itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, you wanna, if you're going to use the hot, hot water to do this, put it, in a, um, put it in a bit of a tray because the jar might possibly break so you want to be careful of that so then pour some hot water into the jar maybe an inch or so of hot water into the jar okay so the jar is standing in the middle of this ice cream tub like fair yeah and you've got hot water like a moat around the jar well, actually just pour it into the jar itself oh actually hot water in the jar hot, hot water okay. into the jar itself i could do that now mind your fingers dave it's pretty hot and then okay and then as soon as you've done that Put the egg on the top and wait. 
Are you going to do it? I'll wait until the second half. If you're doing it with matches, just light, don't, don't bother with the water at all. Light the matches, put the matches inside the jar, then put the egg on the top and see what happens. OK, thank you very much. So if you want to have a go at that and you reckon you know what's going on, email chris at thenakedscientist.com if you can solve Dave's kitchen science puzzle, what happens to the egg and why? Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and Victoria. It's our science phone-in show. And I've got a great uh, email here for you, Vic. This one really made me laugh, actually. It's come from uh, Richard. And he's actually listening in Belgium. And he says, Hi there, I'm Richard from Belgium. I listen to your podcast when I'm at work. Which is, uh, I wonder if all his employers would say about that. He <laughs> says this, My future mother-in-law has a normal body temperature of 35 degrees. I'm not sure why he's been measuring his mother-in-law's <laughs> body temperature. But, um, when she has 37 degrees, she's suffering from a heavy fever. How can it be that some people's body temperature is significantly lower than the 37 degrees that we assume is normal? Could it be that she's evolving back into a reptile? (laughs) Unless he gets on well with his (laughs) mother-in-law. Well, we won't get into why you've been taking her temperature, but um, I think this is about where um, the temperature is being taken from. Um, normally with your, your standard home thermometer, when you're checking if someone has a fever, you'd put it under their tongue or under their armpit. Um, and this is your sort of peripheral temperature. And these are, although these are, are reasonable estimates of what your core body temperature is, it's still an area of your body that's quite exposed to um, outside temperatures. So it's going to be slightly cooler. So um, the, the more accurate measurement would come from a, a rectal thermometer but before you on your mother-in-law <laughs> must be a very good relationship with that mother-in-law well, i'm not going to advocate that directly um but also yeah before you kind of get carried away there um in the the hospitals these days um they use an infrared uh, sensitive thermometer that they you may have seen these that they put into the ear and then it beeps and it'll take your temperature pretty much instantaneously and that's just detecting infrared reflected uh, from the eardrum and because it's a dark kind of cavernous place it won't be um affected by any of the external infrared because obviously there's infrared rays bouncing around um around all around us so um so no i don't i don't think she's uh, evolving back into a reptile sorry about that richard although she's a mother-in-law which means she probably has many of the criteria required Ooh. to be considered <laughs> okay it is the naked scientist and you've got a question for us like that the weirder and wackier the better then send it in chris at the now, Edinburgh is a city known for its festivals, and that includes the international festivals such as the opera and dance festivals, and also there's a film festival and a book and a comedy festival. So it was very fitting that it was the science festival when us naked scientists were there this week, and Ben and Mira went to explore the hands-on event at Wonderama. The Edinburgh International Science Festival was in full swing when the naked scientists got to Edinburgh, and so Mira and I couldn't resist but to go along to Wonderama, the hands-on event at Edinburgh's assembly rooms. When I got there, I was very pleased to be met by a rather robotic-sounding welcome. Welcome the Edinburgh International Science Festival. It's great to be here. The engineers at Haryogwa University built me and brought me over to see you. As soon as I get some legs, I'll be able to see a lot more of the science festival. I'm here with Amy from Watt University, and she's brought along Pi, the talking robot. So, Amy, tell me a bit about Pi. Pi is our intelligent robot here at the Science Festival. He's able to communicate with kids and um, tell them things like jokes and do wee tricks as well and dance. So the kids interact with him by pressing a series of buttons on the the wee keyboard and that communicates to him an action to, to carry out. So is he really a robot or is he just a computer system? What we actually have here is a computer system, no difference to what you'd have at home. It's just we've actually taken it apart just so the kids can see the individual sections. 
So how does Pi actually work? Well, we can actually ask him himself, if you'd just like to come along. Can I help you? My engineers have made the electronics and mechanics of a robot head. If I only had a brain, I looked in the top of my head and found nothing. Wait a minute, I saw someone putting a sticker called Brain on one of the electronic boxes on the display board. Could that be my brain? It looks rather odd, not at all like a human brain. My design engineers call it a processor. Come to think of it, it's the same as the processor in the computers you have at school and at home. I also have some memory storage. That is a computer disk that keeps information for days and weeks and years. If the electricity fails, then that information is not lost. Thank goodness for that. So that's how Pi works, but what's the future for Pi? They're actually working at the moment on a, a new model, which will be able to recognise facial expressions. So say if somebody's feeling upset or down, the robot could recognise this and tell them a joke to cheer them up. They're also working as well on adding a more human-sounding voice, because at the moment it is quite monotonous, because it is just a computer programme that is used to communicate with the users. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to seeing the next generation of Pi. But for now, I think I'll let him end with a joke. Why was the robot confused? I don't know. Why was the robot confused? Because he was told to close his mouth and eat his dinner. That was Pi, the talking robot from Harriet Watts University. Now, I'm sure I left Mira around here somewhere. I seem to have escaped the actual environment of the assembly rooms now and stepped into the Amazon jungle. It's quite amazing just how much like a jungle it really looks like in here. I'm here with one of the helpers, Henry. Hello, Henry. Hello. This is really actually quite an amazing activity. That's right. The whole room's been used as a jungle scene and we're actually standing in our camping tent and we're surrounded outside the tent by a thick, dense canopy, lots of vegetation and plants all around us. In there, we get the uh, children to do different activities and listen to the sounds of the jungle, and it's really realistic. We've had people come in and explain that they've been in jungles and this is exactly what it's like. So what animal sounds have you got the kids listening to? We've got lots of gibbon sounds, titi monkeys, orangutans, crickets... We've also got bats we can hear with our bat detectors and dolphins with our hydrophone. And when an animal sound comes into the jungle, we get them to try and work out what type of animal that might be from. And we give them little hints and clues to guide them into the right decision into which animal sounds it is. There's a session going on at the moment. I can see a group of kids far in the jungle and they've got headphones and I think they're dipping microphones into logs. That's right. In the logs in the jungle, we've got little pygmy shrews. And we're using microphones on probes, and we're probing into the logs and trying to find out where the pygmy shrews are located. It's a bit like a treasure hunt. Not all the logs have shrews in them. Yeah, the kids find it amazing to find where these shrews are located, and we tell them that's where they're living at the moment. So I guess through that you're also helping them learn where animals, their habitats and things like that? Yeah, we explain there's lots of animals in the jungle we can't actually hear, so we need really good microphones and special equipment to find those animals. There's kids over in the far corner, what are they doing there? We're telling the kids that that's the Amazon River, and we explain to them that zoologists don't often want to get into the Amazon River to try and find the animals because there's nasty things like piranhas and crocodiles that may be lurking in the depths. We have to use a hydrophone. It's an underwater microphone 
we listen out for the sounds of the Amazonian Boto dolphin. And the kids find that amazing to be listening to a dolphin. So what do you actually want the kids to kind of leave here, just remembering? We want the kids to understand that we can't see where the animals are. We use sound as a very important instrument to find where the animals are. So sounds can help the zoologists to locate animals and they also help robots to chat to children and uh, they also help you to find out what's happening at the Edinburgh Science Festival. And talking about wildlife noises, I tell you, all you have to do is go out in Edinburgh in the evening and you'll see all the wildlife and nightlife you could possibly ever want. It is The Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and Victoria. We've heard from Linda, she's in Norwich, and she says, why, when she has a bath, does she get really, really thirsty? Well, I have a theory on this, Linda. It could be that you're having a very hot bath and when you have a very hot bath, your body temperature actually goes up quite high because normally you would regulate body temperature by sweating and when you sweat, water moves onto the surface of the skin. That water evaporating then carries extra heat away from the body surface. That's called latent heat of evaporation. And when when the water vaporises in this way, it carries away extra heat from you and cools you down. But of course, if you're in a steamy bathroom, it's much harder for the water to evaporate. And also if you're submersed in the bath, it's impossible for the water to evaporate from your body surface so your temperature goes up. This means that you can actually end up feeling as though you've lost lots of water because you're so warm and the body's reflex is to encourage you to drink so i think that's probably the reason now dave i've got a question here from brian randall and this is a really interesting one i like this one he says um i've got a question regarding mobile phone interference if my mobile phone is in pr- close proximity to say my stereo it interferes with it, it causes that beep, 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 yeah. noise why does my mobile phone interfere with itself then when it's playing music for example he says okay the reason why you're mo- brian in bedford by the way Okay, the reason why your mobile phone interferes with your stereo is your stereo is actually a very, very inefficient radio. It, it'll convert um, radio signals into sound signals. Um, this used to happen when I was a kid. I lived right at, the, right at the bottom of the hill of a really powerful medium wave transmitter. And you could pick, because the signals were so powerful, all sorts of things which wouldn't normally act as radios will suddenly start behaving like ones. So I could pick up Radio 5 on my computer and all sorts of things like that. Um, so basically it's picking up the mobile phone, which is transmitting digital data, which makes that horrible. Beep, beep, beeping noises and type noises. Does it go again? Um, Sorry, I, I, I couldn't resist that. Um, so, so it's a really inefficient one. But you can also design the radio inside the phone is designed specifically to ignore the wavelengths. The audio part of this phone is specifically designed to ignore the wavelengths which it's transmitting on. So about anything about two or three gigahertz, it will completely ignore them. So it won't pick it up. You can put in filters which will stop those being transmitted. So it's a bit like a person not smelling their own bo. Uh, the phone doesn't get soiled by its own kind of wireless sort of emissions. Yeah, specifically designed not to, basically. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. That's, that's interesting, because I've, I've wondered that myself. Uh, this is a quick question for you, Victoria, and it comes uh, from, actually, it's from Sweden. It's uh, Andrea, or Andrea. I'm not sure if, if this is Andrea or Andrea, so apologise if I've said your name wrong. Um, I'm wondering if someone who holds their breath for a lo- very long time, how they can stand the high level of acidity they receive in their blood, and also if the acid will harm their body in any way. What's actually happen when you Im- happening when you improve holding your breath for a long time? Perhaps you better explain also why holding your breath makes things go a bit acid. Oh, well, yeah. Um, anaerobic respiration, this is. So you get a, basically, it's a, a different biochemical pathway that your body uses when there isn't oxygen um, as an energy source uh, available. So you produce lots of uh, lactate, lots of CO2 and there's lots of um, lo- um, lots of hydrogen protons in the blood so um, that, that makes it acidic and um, p- people that can hold their breath for a bit longer um, well, everybody has buffers in their blood to counteract the um, effects of this anaerobic respiration buffers like bicarbonate which is just alkaline so it, it means that you buffer the pH of your blood to keep it neutral so these are chemicals that can soak up acid yeah, and, and stop and basically stop the acid being just acid and it's, it means that you can 
put acid into the bloodstream and, and the blood won't become acidic because it's the acid is bound onto something and yeah. that's the buffer. Esse- yeah, essentially. And you'll find in, in, in some people that can hold their breath for a particularly long period of time that they'll excrete, excrete more of these, of these buffers because they'll produ- be producing higher levels of them in the blood. Basically also um, in people that uh, can hold their breath for a very long period of time, they, they'll be very practiced at it so they'll be very, very relaxed. Um, and this is true if, if you've ever had a scuba diving lesson, you might find that you've been very nervous um, and you'll go through quite a lot of oxygen. I use in your twice tank. as much air in the tank as the instructor. Yeah, for, and that's, for that's the same duration. That's of dive. extremely common because you're 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 very nervous. It's the first time you've done it, and you're. I, was very, very I think heavily. I was just very excited. Actually, yeah. I was thinking, wow, yeah. this is amazing, and I was just breathing at twice the rate I should have done. Exactly. So you can, when you practice at these things, the same with scuba diving, the same with holding your breath, you can sort of slow down your respiration and relax a lot more. So you hold your breath for longer. You were talking about lactate earlier. Is that the same as the lactic acid which people talk about building up in their legs and hurt and makes them hurt when you run too? Yeah, everybody will be very familiar with that, the, the stitch feeling that you get in your muscles when you've been running for a long time. And we had an interesting uh, communication a little while back from uh, Ray Wright. He's in Burwell, and it was a question about calories. And he says, um, why is it that uh, since when you take cold water into the body, uh, you have to warm that water up, why can't you just diet by just drinking lots of cold water? Because the energy you burn off in your body raising the temperature of the water up to a certain temperature um, would be quite a lot. So you could just lose weight by drinking loads of cold water. Well, I was having this discussion when I was in Australia recently. I was at a dinner uh, with a wonderful guy, and his name is Leslie Burnett, and he's actually president of the Australasian Association Association for Clinical Biochemists, and we were having this dinner and we were talking about this question, and we tried to work out the answer, but because we'd drunk too much of another kind of water, the water of life, um, we kept getting the sums wrong on the back of the napkin. And so he's actually gone away, and this has obviously piqued his curiosity because he ri- he's written to me, and he says, Dear Chris, I hope you've now returned to Cambridge safely and haven't got too much of an accent following your stay in Australia and New Zealand. Um, regarding the dinner conversation we had about weight loss and drinking large amounts of water, I happened to go camping with a colleague of mine from Sydney University of Technology over the weekend, and we did the necessary calculations on thermal capacity. So if you recall, the question was, if most most diets recommend you drink five to six glasses of tap water a day. Wouldn't you lose a lot of weight just by the act of drinking the cold water and because you're warming it up to body temperature and then passing it out as urine at 37 degrees? So why bother with the diet if drinking the cold water is all you need to do? So he's done the calculation and he says, right, ambient temperature of the water, let's say, is 17 degrees centigrade. That makes the calculation easy. You'll see in a minute. And body temperature is 37 degrees C. Okay. So if you take the glass of water to be 200 millilitres, so a fifth of a litre. If you drink five of those a day, that's a litre of water in a day, let's say. Now, it takes one calorie of energy to heat one millilitre of water by one degree C. OK, so in other words, heating the water from your ambient 17 degrees C to body temperature, 37 degrees C, that's a 20, 20 degrees C increase, um, will mean that you have to go 20 calories per millilitre of water times 1,000 millilitres of water. That's 20,000 calories to get the water up to body temperature. But... Here's the problem, okay? The definition of a calorie that dietetics use, as in what you see on the back of a packet, isn't a calorie, it's killer calories, thousands of calories. So although it gives you the impression it's actually 20,000 calories to heat the water up, it's actually 20 calories. And as Leslie points out, um, yes, you will use up energy by drinking a litre of water and then passing out as warm energy, but the energy you use is only equivalent to eating a small apple. 
okay? Uh, and definitely less energy than you would gain by eating a block of chocolate or a packet of potato crisps. And a packet of crisps, for example, contains about 200 calories. That's about 10 times the energy in the water. So you'd have to gulp down half of the Atlantic before you'd actually manage to burn off half of a chocolate bar. So there's no easy answer. You just have to, I'm afraid go with the exercise and reduce your calories no quick fix so there you go that's the answer to your question no quick diet tips from the naked scientists then um i've got one here for you chris um from chris burgess um who asks are there any moving animals that have chlorophyll in their skin cells that they use as an energy source like plants do yeah this is really really exciting and i remember reading about this eight years ago when people began to discover this sort of thing um there are some sea slugs which have evolved to eat well they eat algae these are marine plants microorganisms and these plants have chlorophyll in them because that's how they capture this energy in the sun and turn it into chemical energy in the form of glucose. These sea slugs have evolved to graze on the algae. They have little outpouchings called diverticula of their gut and they can put the chloroplasts, which are the green bits in the algal cells that contain the chlorophyll, into these little sacs and they extend all the way to the surface of the slug's skin. So the chloroplast, which can capture the sun's energy like a miniature solar panel, ends up under the skin of the slug. The slug also has some genes in its body which it stole from the algae donkeys years ago so it can keep these things alive and they can persist in the body of these slugs they're called sacoglossin slugs for up to four months and so the slug can effectively photosynthesize it can capture energy from the sun and use it in its own body in a slightly less extreme way i think there are some forms of jellyfish which will keep whole algae inside them so the jellyfish will swim up to the surface during the summer during the day and absorb lots of sun in the in the algae eat the algae at night when they go down and hide away from all the predators Thank you, Dave, for that little bit of extra insight, shedding some light on that question. i uh, got one here for you very, very quickly from Stephen James, who says, if I put light in a perfectly sealed box with mirrors inside it, would the, lights, would the light bounce around inside for eternity? It depends on your mirrors. Um, normal mirrors which you use at home actually only reflect about 80% of the light. So by the time it's gone backwards and forwards a few times, you, every time you're going to lose 20% of what you've got left. And light moves at about 300 um, million metres per second. So it's going to get bounce backwards and forwards in your box very quickly and you're going to lose most of the light very quickly. Even with the best possible mirrors we can make, it only reflects, it still loses about 1% every time you do it. So if you have perfect mirrors, yes. Otherwise, in practicality, no. And what would you do with it if you could? And how would you know it was in there? Because if you tried to detect it, you'd soak it up and you could never, you could never do that, could you? Um, I mean, you could, you could put some light in there and look, come back two months later and see if it was still there. But yeah, it's not especially useful. Very quickly, Helen in Cambridge says, could we make a vaccine for coughs and colds? Pretty much everything out there. The answer is, Helen, not easily, because A, there are hundreds of different types of cold virus, and B, they're continuously on the move. They're a moving target because they use a genetic form of uh, information called RNA, which makes mistakes when it copies itself, and that means that they're continuously changing their shape. It's like having a facelift at the level of a virus on a daily basis, so you don't recognise them from the perspective of your immune system very easily again, so they can easily re infect you and a really good example of this is norovirus which is causing diarrhea and has laid three million people or had three million people locked to a loose seat for longer than they'd like in the uk this year um, and norovirus is an example of this it very quickly adapts and changes its appearance so even though you've had it once six months later you can catch it again because it looks entirely different by then 
It is the Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and Victoria. Dave's got his kitchen science experiment running. Just remind everyone what you want them to do, Dave. Get a hard-boiled egg, possibly lubricate it with some oil. Um, get a jar, put, make it hot. This with is a, peeled egg. So Yeah, peeled hard-boiled egg, yeah, otherwise it's going to make a horrible mess. And you will definitely pulverise the egg. Um, get a jar, um, add some, make it hot with some matches or some hot water, put the egg on the top and see what happens. Okay, if you have any clues, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, earlier this week, we sent Mira to meet our technology correspondent, and that's Chris Valance, to tune into the technology that's changing the way that we keep up with our favourite bands. Some recent projects in the field of technology have been in the production and tracking of music. So I've come to London to meet up with our resident tech expert, Chris Valance, for a coffee to chat about these quirky developments. So, Chris, one piece of news is a way to follow your favourite bands in a new way. Yes, I thought I'd talk about this because it's got a Cambridge connection. This is a startup company called Songkick. It's a new tech venture. And it basically aims to be a kind of last FM for live bands. The idea is that it knows the kind of music you like. It follows what you listen to on your computer and tells you when bands you might like come to town. Now, there are lots of sites doing this, sites like uh, Bands in Town, Last FM also do it as well. What's interesting about Songkick, two of the Songkick founders are Cambridge University graduates, and there's the Cambridge connection, is the way in which Songkick picks up on bands that don't actually have any real big recording deal. These might be the people who practice in their bedrooms, you know, who play the pub once a week. How do you find out about bands like that? Well, Songkick uses something very clever. It uses what's called semantic search. In other words, it looks at web pages, it looks at blogs and what people are writing and tries to draw out some of the meaning using that to figure out, you know, what does the person who's written this like? What kind of music do they like? So it can get you interested in new music as well? Yeah, the idea is that it captures the bands who really just don't register on the radar of things like iTunes, for example, people who don't have music deals. Well, I spoke to Ian Hogarth, who's a founder of the site, and uh, he explained a little bit more about how their technology works. We've got the first recommendation engine ever for music, for live music. So, you know, Pandora, Last.fm, great, great recommendation engines for music. We've built one that works for live music. What's different about a recommendation engine for live music? The main reason is because of the size of the bands you're talking about. So, you know, the conventional long tail for music. There's bands that the long tail kind of goes down and it stops when the band isn't being recorded, but then it keeps going for live, down to the guy who just, like, plays in his bedroom and has a MySpace page. And those guys are playing live, but they're not really being recorded as such. So we need to find a way of recommending them. And there's much less data out there on them, so we, we have developed a kind of semantic web approach to getting data for that artist such that we can recommend them. So that was Ian Hogarth, one of the creators behind Songkick, showing a new way to follow even the most remote bands out there. The, the system also tracks buzz about bands, which has led some people to worry that it might be a tool of use to ticket touts, but I guess that's going to be the case with any new technology like this. So it'll be interesting to follow how this Cambridge-inspired project works. Holy go, I know it's gone A4 Knock, knock, knock on heaven's door Wash up on an astral shore Or trample down a dusty floor Chris, what on earth is that? Well, I'm sorry to inflict this upon your listeners. This was a piece of music I was involved in the writing of because I paid a visit to a very interesting project called Rise and Shine. Now, what Rise and Shine aimed to do is for a whole month 
They aimed to write a song between the hours of 7 and, I think, 10 about the day's news. Now, OK, that's kind of interesting, and they were podcasting it, etc. But why is that a tech story? Well, what I thought was fascinating is the way that they were using new video tools to help write the song, to help get a community around the song. So, for example, the song playing process was filmed on a service called Quick, which allows you to stream video from your mobile phone. It was written in the guy's flat, but he'd managed to rig up a webcam in every room so that you could see the songwriting process take place and leave chat messages. And that was using a system called Mogulus. And at the same time, he was getting feedback and comments on the songs through a system called Seismic, which I don't know if you use Twitter, which is like a micro-blogging site. Seismic is its kind of video partner, if you like. But the whole project, why would you try and create a song about the day's news to find out more Rise and Shine's founder, Dean Whitbread, explained the rationale. The project's called Rise and Shine. Uh, it's on riseandshine.tv. And what we have to do as writers is write a song every, every morning, which is inspired by the news. We have a lot of input from our audience who suggest topics and give us lyrics and sometimes they give us performances to use. And today's challenge has been to write on the subject of the Japanese unmanned space flight. In fact, it's origami. They're sending origami into space to re-enter the Earth. And this is quite a serious news item. It's challenged from a 7 a.m. start. We've got three hours. And we work pretty steadily until at 10 to 10, we're performing the song in its entirety before a live audience. That was Dean Whitbread, one of the musical creators behind Song A Day. But Chris, I have to ask, are these songs actually any good? They're surprisingly good, given the constraints. I came up with the lyric, which was uh, the song was about the news story about the Japanese launching paper planes into space. So the lyric I came up with was, to boldly go where no man's gone, A4. Ah, very funny. Yeah, you see, so it's all a bit like that. <laughs> but it is all in a good course, so I don't think we want to set the quality threshold too high. That was an absolutely horrendous joke. Anyway, it's Chris Valance. He's our technology correspondent with his first foray into writing lyrics. Don't give up your day job, Chris. He'll be meeting up with Mira again soon. This is, of course, The Naked Scientist with Chris and Victoria and Dave. And very soon we're going to be finding out about the answer to this week's question of the week, which concerns whether or not you should glug down that bottle of wine if you discover it when you're very thirsty in the desert. Don't forget, it's our science phone-in extravaganza. If you've got any science questions for us, email us, chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, now it's time to welcome Diana O'Carroll back into the studio to take on this week's question. Hi, Diana. Hello. How are you this week? Very well, thank you. Are you are you a wine drinker? Um, I do like a bit of wine, especially in sangria, actually. <laughs> Mediterranean thing. theme. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, for this week's question of the week, we've got a drinking problem. Hi, I'm Simon from uh, Hiroshima in Japan. The question is in two parts. If I'm walking through the desert and I'm slowly becoming dehydrated and I come across a case of wine, uh, obviously with screw caps, and I uh, start drinking it, will it accelerate my dehydration or will it enable me to survive? And would the lower or higher levels of alcohol make a great difference to the situation? Secondly, if the alcohol in wine is potentially harmful to me in a dehydrated state, could I pour it into a bowl and let the alcohol evaporate? And if so, how long would it take to evaporate and reach drinkable levels? We're told that drinking alcoholic beverages has a dehydrating effect. If there's no other liquid about, then what should you do? 
Hello, my name is Sue Beitch and I'm a lecturer in nutrition and public health at the University of Bristol where I look at research into the links between diet and health. I was very interested in the question, um, if you were lost in the desert and you came across some wine in screw cap bottles, would it be better to drink it or would it make you more dehydrated? Presumably by then you'd actually be pretty, pretty thirsty. So your drive would be to try and drink what, whatever you could. But actually that would be the wrong thing to do. Any alcoholic drink over about 10% alcohol strength will actually be a net dehydrator, which means it will cause you to pass out more water in your urine than it actually gives you. So, for example, for a 125ml glass of wine, you'd actually end up passing out 150ml of fluid. So it would be a net loss of about 25ml of fluid. So it definitely wouldn't be a good thing to do to drink that. With beer, if you're drinking full-strength beer, 5% alcohol, you'll lose about half the water, but the other half will contribute to your daily water intake. So any drink containing more than 10% alcohol will make you more shriveled and dried out, so it's better not to drink it. That means the only type of wine you should be drinking in the desert is the really cheap stuff that comes in a plastic bottle. But alcohol does evaporate quite quickly, so there may be a way of reducing the percentage. Okay, well, my name's Neil McFarlane. I'm a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Biomedical Life Sciences at Glasgow University. Now, the common belief that taking alcohol will lead to dehydration is pretty well supported in the scientific research. The reason for this dehydration effect is that when the blood alcohol level rises, it stops the release of a hormone called antidiuretic hormone. And as the name suggests, this hormone normally prevents urine production, so when you lower its levels, that leads to an increase in the amount of urine you produce and consequently you can get dehydrated. However, the exact amount of alcohol that causes increased urine production can vary from person to person, but it's safe to say that if you drink a lot, that will always cause a problem. But by being a scientist, I know that there's actually some use and some value in that wine we've found. I know that alcohols are more volatile than water and that ethanol boils at only 78 degrees C compared to 100 degrees C for water. So perhaps there's some salvation there. I could open the bottle of wine in the shade, even in the shade from my own body, and I should be able to remove alcohol from the wine by letting it evaporate. If you're into cooking and you pour some wine into a frying pan, then the alcohol disappears almost instantaneously. If you're out in the desert, you know, in the sun, the temperatures could be over 100 degrees centigrade. So if it's anywhere you know, above 80, 90 degrees, you open the bottle, the alcohol will evaporate off within 30, 40 minutes. This would leave a liquid to hydrate and provide energy for myself. And given that situation, perhaps I could take myself to have a few glugs of the bottle just when it opens, just to get a party going. There we go then. If you're partying in the desert, you might want to drink up quickly. So you'd still be all right with your sangria then, I think, then. below the 10% tipping it, point. It depends who makes it. <laughs> um, and this has stimulated some chat on the on the website. Uh, Madidas Scientia, I hope I've said that right, and board chemist on the forum, um, came up with the tipping point of 10% alcohol as well. Neil E.P. rather intelligently pointed out that it might be alcohol-free wine anyway, um, but this kicked off even more discussion on the forum as uh, Turnip Sock pointed out that alcohol-free wine is a stupid concept and uh, Rosalind DNA said it tastes sharp and vile. Harsh so we've words. got to, uh, no fans of alcohol-free wine on our forum then, Diana. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm sure they'd hate that, but they would probably prefer it to this situation. Hi, this is Paul calling in from Hong Kong. I tend to drive with all the windows closed and the recirculation function engaged. This way I keep out the diesel fumes and dust. The flip side is I'm breathing in recirculated and progressively stale air. So my question is, if the car were a perfectly sealed container, 
How big would it have to be for me to survive in it for a day? I'm trying to figure out how long I can drive in a compact car without running the risk of passing out. So after we air that one, I'll be doing some telly zapping to find the answer to this. Hello there. My name is Clive Wilkins. I'm from Sutton Coalfield. I have a question. My dad always used to unplug the TV when lightning was nearby. Was this the right thing to do?、Uh, excuse the pun. What is the current advice? Thank you. So, how long can you survive in a sealed box with a broken telly? Check out our forum for su- some discussion on these questions and more at thenakedscientists.com/forum. And you can also send new questions and answers to me at questionoftheweek@thenakedscientists.com. Thank you very much. That's Diana O'Carroll who runs our question of the week. Fantastic answer this week. So I know what to do when I'm lost in the desert. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work?、Mm-hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientists.com/podcast. It's the Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Victoria Gill, and Dave Ansell. And this week we have got an explosive kitchen science for you, which involves pulverising an egg. Dave, just quickly summarise what we want people to do: get a jar which is slightly smaller than an egg, peel a A hard-boiled egg,、um, but maybe lube it up a bit with some oil,、um, then put, make the jar hot with the、uh, matches or some hot water. Put the egg on the top and wait.、Uh, Ken is in Bakefield. He reckons he knows what happens. Hi, Ken. Hello. What's the solution here? Well, I personally think that the egg is going to slide into the、uh, neck of the bottle or jar. And why do you think that? Well, the air inside is going to cool down, and the air pressure on the outside will push the egg inside. Okay, stay on the line and let's find out if you're right. So, Dave, is he on the right lines? I think he. I hope he might well be. Okay, so I'm going to get some really hot boiling water and pour it into my jar. Be careful you do this at home. It's just possible that the jar might break when you do this. Diving over to the other side of the studio here. <laughs> and quickly, I'm going to put the egg on the top. So that's boiling water gone into this jar, and the egg is the lubricated egg is now sitting on the top of this jar.、Uh, the neck of the jar is just slightly smaller than the egg, and Dave is now putting the jar in. And putting the jar in some cold water, water to hopefully speed the and, process. Oh my god! I can already see something happening. Yes, I think it's going to take a while. Matches works quicker, but as I said earlier, we have、um, health and safety issues with matches. It, it's it is the egg is getting smaller on the top, Dave. Something's happening. It is it's sucking its way down gently. You know we finish at seven, so、um, <laughs> how long is this going to take? We'll find out. Should, should we start off with what? What's... Okay. Will you tell us what you expect is happening here? First, and then we'll look at whether it works. Well, what should be happening here, just as、um, we was told earlier, that <coughs> the hot water, if air get, heats up the air, air, when air gets hot, it expands, and also hot water will fill the jar, jar with lots of water vapor. And as that cools down and condenses on the outside, it should shrink to reduce the pressure inside the jar, which means that the pressure inside is less than the pressure outside, which means the air pressure should push the egg down into the jar. Uh, getting the egg inside the jar. How does this apply in the real world? I mean, assuming that this does work, how does this apply to real-world science?、Um, actually, there's a very similar principle to how the first steam engines worked. The first steam engines, the, the present steam engines, work by when you boil water, it expands and that pushes pistons out. But the original ones actually work. They've got a cylinder, filled it full of steam. That steam, then they squirted some water in that and made it condense. That made it shrink and pulled the piston down, which tended to pull a piston, a pump up, and pump water, help pump water out of a mine.、Uh, I think this may take a while. So, 
Mm, I, I think that, well, it, it has sucked it in a bit, Dave, but I don't think we've got long enough to, to <laughs> see the explosion. But uh, let's go back to Ken. Have you actually seen it work? Yes, I have, actually. We used to do it at school many, many years ago. So what actually should Dave be seeing in front of him? The, the egg uh, goes into the jar and it explodes. OK. Um, is there any way of getting the egg back out again so we can eat it? Uh, you can use a long-handled spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being a good sport, Ken, and, uh, okay. and, and, and enabling everyone to experience it vicariously through your own descriptions. That was really good of you. Okay, right, Good to have you on Bye the show. Mate. As Ken, he's in Bakefield, he had to go at our kitchen science, which Dave's still waiting for to work. That's the, that's the benefit of doing live science, isn't it, it Dave? It does. It always, goes it always wrong. makes it more interesting. Victoria, got a question here for you. Uh, this is an, an email from Pete who says, Where do all the snails go in summer? When it's rainy and wet and around autumn time we see loads of snails, but when it's hot there are no snails in sight. Where do they go? They hide, basically. Um, snails need to maintain moisture on their on their skin at all times, so in the hot, dry weather they, they don't want to be losing all that moisture. And also in the uh, light of day they're very exposed to predators, um, so they tend to hide away. So if you lift up a few rocks or uh, big plant pots in your garden you'll probably find find them there okay just so they're trying to stay cool and dry mm. um dave you need to stay cool with your experiments not working <laughs> over there uh, mary in enfield says she's heard something about these energy saving light bulbs not being as efficient uh, as we thought is this true and should we carry on using them or just switch back to the normal ones um i haven't heard what she's talking about um they're definitely a lot more efficient than normal light bulbs um they do take more energy to make than a normal light bulb but the amount of energy they save in their lifetime is much more than the energy you lose in making them I've got a question here for you, Chris, while we're uh, on a cooking theme, um, from Stephen. And he says, every time he puts a tablespoon of table salt into boiling water, the boil intensifies and then subsides. What's happening there? OK, the reason for this is that the salt crystals, you could put sugar in it, it'll do the same thing, act as what are called nucleation points. So they make it much more easy for bubbles of the vapour, which is the boiling water at the bottom of the pan, to form. Because it's hard for a bubble to form in the first place because of the water crushing in on it, because of the, the surface tension, if you like. Small bubbles are very hard to form. And if you put crystals in, then they disrupt the structure of the water, they make it much more energetically favourable for a bubble to pop into existence, and so that's why you get this intensification of the boiling point. That's why it happens. Okay. Right, well, we've pretty much run out of time. Just time to tell you that next week we're going to be exploring the science of the sun and the biggest solar storm in history. It was enough to wipe out communications over the entire of planet Earth, and that was called the Carrington Affair. We'll find out about it next week. Join us then, if you can. Thank you to our production team, including Victoria Gill, Dave Ansell, Ben Vowsler, Petro Minch, Mira Senthalingham, Chris Valance, and Diana O'Carroll. Have a great weekend. See you next time. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.